Acts chapter 22, verse 22, that's where we'll start. Acts 22, 22. We've been preaching through the book of Acts now for a couple of years. Um, and we are towards the end. We're through th- uh, all three of Paul's missionary journeys. And we're looking at when he finished the third missionary journey, came into Jerusalem and his interactions in Jerusalem. Uh, that's where we're going to be picking up. While you're switching to or pull, uh, pulling up Acts chapter 22, verse 22, I want to read a different text to you. Today's Palm Sunday, uh, the Sunday before Easter. And so I want to read the text of why we call that, why we call this day Palm Sunday. Uh, I'm reading from Matthew 21. Uh, it says this, Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Beth, Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, uh, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a burst of beaten. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them uh, on their cloak, put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!" And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, "Who is this?" And the crowd said, "This is the prophet Jesus." From Nazareth of Galilee. So uh, this is the week before Easter, uh, this, this week that we're in, Palm Sunday, and this is why they call it Palm Sunday, as we uh, consider the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and of course, uh, how the week turns on Thursday night, and he willingly gives his life on Friday morning, and then resurrects from the grave on Sunday. And we're, we're thinking on all of these things uh, this entire week, and so we want to invite you to be a part of these things. Uh, this coming Thursday night, uh, on a Monday, 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 Thursday type service, we're going to have a hymn sing in here on Thursday night. On Good Friday, we're going to have a Good Friday service, one of our standard Good Friday services at 6.30. And then, of course, Easter on, nine, on Sunday at 9.30 and 11.15. Also, just for fun on Saturdays, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt for the kids. So I uh, want to invite you to all those things. And the purpose of all these things that we're doing is to prepare your heart and mind uh, as we go through this week, uh, to think on the greatness of the resurrection. We do that every Sunday, but the Lord has gifted us and reminded us of uh, a week every year that we think on Easter, we think on the resurrection of Jesus, think on his, uh, all the things that he endured for us that particular week. And so uh, we want to invite you to be a part of all those things uh, as we're going through them this week for the whole purpose of on Sunday, uh, that you come, not just this coming Easter, but every Sunday, that you are responding with joy and worship for the resurrected Savior. So um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 22, as I've said. So here at Remedy Church, uh, we stand when we read the text together. So if you're able, I'd love for you to stand as we read starting in Acts chapter 22, 22 through 23, 11. As I finish the reading of the text, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And as you say, thanks be to God, you're, you're really doing kind of a couple things. You're saying thanks, obviously, that the Lord would be so kind to speak to us and give us his word. But you're also in your heart and mind saying, yes, Lord, the, the things that you, that, that you teach me, the things that I see, the, the, the things that the Holy Spirit uh, wants me to know, I want to obey those things this week. And so as you say, thanks be to God, you're also saying that. So uh, starting at chapter 22, verse 22, I, I'll give us some context after uh, we read and pray. Ch- 22, 22. 
up to this word. They listened to him. They raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be brought that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship, obviously for himself, with a large sum of money. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who are about to examine him or flog him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said... Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it was with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if an angel or spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify also in Rome. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. You're so kind and gracious to give us your word. We pray that as we look at it this morning, we wouldn't just approach it for a a mere learning of facts, but much more than that, you've given us your word so that we can know Christ, that we can dwell on Christ, we can think on uh, his glory, his honor, that we should worship him and God, all the precious promises that are available to us in Christ Jesus. And so as we see these things in the text this morning, God, would you make us aware of these things and cause us to have a heart that responds in worship and adoration of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, just as a little bit of a recap, uh, We've been looking through the book of Acts, and we've seen Paul's three missionary journeys. And as he finished that third missionary journey, leaving uh, the island of Miletus, as he met with the Ephesian elders, he traveled by boat back back to Jerusalem. As he came into Jerusalem, uh, he knew that there was going to be some... 
some opposition. And as he got in there, he came in and he met with James, Jesus' brother. And he told James and Jesus' brother uh, all the things that had happened on the three missionary journeys about all the Gentiles, because Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles, that had been saved. And they were super, super excited for him for just maybe five seconds or so. And then they're like, hey, we also have a lot of people that are uh, becoming Christians here that are Jewish. Also, you need to know some more things. I'm, I'm looking around chapter 21, starting in verse 20 or so. And so uh, he says, we have a lot of people that have also been saved. And then in verse 21, James says, there's people that are Jewish that aren't pretty big fans of you, Paul. As a matter of fact, this is the, this is the word on the street. The rumor is that uh, they've been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. And so this isn't true. Paul has not taught them. He's told Gentiles that you don't have to walk according to the law, but he's never told Jews they don't have to. And so James makes this proposal. Listen, they're going to be here. I mean, they're going to know you're in Jerusalem. And since they're going to know you're in Jerusalem, they're going to get mad at you. So here's what we can do. You join these other guys that are in this vow. When they go into the temple in a week, they'll come here. They'll see you doing these Jewish customs. And then his, his thought is, you can see, in verse 25, thus they'll all know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you also live in observance to the law. And so we see that and we're like, that's what Paul's going to do, storybook ending. They're all going to think it's awesome. They're going to go out for pizza later and be like, Paul's awesome. We love him. Not what happens, right? That's not what happens at all. It goes the opposite of what they want. Uh, Paul does these things. They don't like Paul still. They come in we're starting at verse 21, 27. Uh, he goes in there. They tell lies about Paul. They say he took uh, a Gentile into the inner temples, which isn't true. They had seen Trophimus, uh, the Ephesian, with them. And they seized Paul. They dragged him out. And they're trying to kill him. Uh, and so <clears throat> as they're trying to beat him up, the Roman government sees this big mob uproar. And he doesn't want this in a city, obviously. So he, he stops everything that's going on. They pull Paul away from the Jewish people. And as this is going on, Paul asks for permission. Let me talk to them. I want to be able to, I want to be explain to them what's going on. And so the Roman government allows Paul to address them. And as he starts addressing them and talking to them, he speaks to them in Hebrew. It says it twice, once in 2140 and another time in 22.2. Luke's wanting to make sure that he's letting us know that he's addressing them in their level uh, and he gives in, in uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 1, uh, a recounting of his salvation. that happened in Acts chapter 9, and he, he kind of recounts this same thing, same kind of major outline. But uh, as he's doing this, he's talking to people who are Jewish. So he's highlighting in chapter 22 the, the Jewish parts and the Jewishness of his salvation, trying to convince those people who are Jewish that he doesn't do that. He doesn't forsake Moses. And so uh, he's going to do that again, one more time, recount what happened. But we saw in Acts 9 uh, his, his salvation. He, he recounts it here in 22. Now, this is the, in t- chapter 22, the first of five speeches that Paul is going to give after he's finished his three missionary journeys. The rest of the book, uh, of the book of Acts, Paul's going to have kind of five missionary, I'm not sorry, sorry, five speeches where he talks about um, to different people uh, what's going on in his life. That's 22 1, 23-1, 24-1, 25-1, 26-1. Those are the five speeches. And that's how Luke decides to end the narrative of the book of Acts, helping us see when Paul eventually gets to Rome. Now, this is what we're looking at, and this is what we're seeing in chapter 22, 1. He gives this speech. Now, he's doing it in Hebrew. Now, you've got the, tri- the, the Roman tribune there. Uh, his name's Claudius Lysias, and as he's listening to all this, he doesn't speak Hebrew, right? But he can, he can tell body language. And Paul's talking, and they're listening, and Paul's talking, and they're listening. He's, okay, this seems to be going all right. And as we get to the end of the speech, uh, which is where we're picking up, you can see, let's just start at uh, 20. And he's telling them... Uh, 
that he, he saw the blood of Stephen, uh, that he was actually witnessing that. He himself held the coats for people that were watching. He watched over the garments of those that were killing him. And then he said, Jesus actually said to me after all that, because he knew that he couldn't stay in Jerusalem, Jesus said, you don't need to stay in Jerusalem, Paul. As a matter of fact, I'm going to send you far away out of Jerusalem to the Gentiles. Boom, this word, this word Gentiles, right? This mention of this word Gentiles, when Paul's talking to these people who are Jewish, that's what sets them off. So you can see in verse 22, up to this word they listened to him, the, this word is the word Gentiles, which they're Jewish and they, they don't like Gentiles and they don't like Paul and they think that he's, he's hanging out with them too much. It's up to this word they listened to him and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. And then verse 23, these are grown men. Listen to what they do. They're so mad at Paul. This, these are grown men. As they were shouting and throwing off their coats and flinging dust in the air. I mean, this, this is what they're doing. Now, we look at that and we're like, that seems a little crazy. But what's happening is, uh, sounds like a temper tantrum, but in this day and age and in this mindset, whenever uh, there was uh, the hearing of what they thought as blasphemy, it was not blasphemy, but what they thought of as blasphemy, this is their reaction that you should do. You should, you should throw your coats around in the, in, in the air and fling dust in the air. Now, um, I, I want to encourage you not to do this today, whenever you're doing your evangelism, when you hear blasphemy, not to throw your coats around and fling dust in the air. Probably not going to get the same reaction that gets here. Uh, but anyway, as we're looking at this, we're going to see that there's immediate persecution of Paul. There's immediate persecution of Paul. Now, we looked at some persecution last week, but we're going to see even more. And as we're seeing this persecution happening of Paul, there's three different strategies that he's going to use uh, to overcome persecution. So if in your own personal evangelism I said, kind of half-hearted jokingly, don't throw your coat around and throw dust in the air, well, then what do I do, bud? Like, should I not do that? No, you shouldn't. So here's what you should do. He's going to give us, uh, I think, three missionary strategies for when uh, persecution comes to you, how you can overcome it in a way that still glorifies Christ. So you're going to see in, in the text here three ways or three strategies to overcome persecution in your own life that when it happens uh, in a way that honors Jesus and glorifies Christ um, and, and hopefully also pushes forward the mission, pushes forward the mission. Uh, Tony Marita has a, has a catchy way of remembering the, the, the three strategies I'm going to use, rock, paper, scissors. Uh, and you you're going to remember it because you love rock, paper, scissors. We all do. And so I'm going to use those. He doesn't go in that order, but uh, that's what we're going to look at. So here we, ha- here we are. Um, immediately we see that there's going to be persecution that's going to happen. And as they were shouting and throwing off their clothes and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him, here it is, to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. So this, this tribune, uh, Claudius Lysias, also a.k.a. Jack Bauer apparently, wants to... Uh, get some, extract some information from him via torturing. And so you haven't, we've asked the people, it didn't work. Now we're just going to flog you so I can get the information. I need to know what's going on. So we're going to set you over here. We're going to whip you until you talk to us, um, Jack Bauer style. And so uh, this is a much more severe kind of torture than what Paul and Silas had had in Philippi when they beat him with rods. One, one, uh, one writer says the scourge or the the examining by flogging was such a fearful instrument of torture consisting of leather, thongs weighted with rough pieces of metal or bone and attached to a stout wooden handle. If a man did not actually die under the scourge, which frequently happened, he would certainly be crippled for life. So this is no small deal, right? Uh, Paul knows what this is. They're tying up to the whipping post here. Uh, and as that's happening, when they'd stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, 
Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? This is what's known as a, as a rhetorical question. <laughs> he knows the answer to this, right? Paul's not like wondering. He's just thinking to himself, you know, I don't really feel like being whipped today, flogging, and I know how I can get out of this. And so I'm going to employ my rightful uh, Roman citizenship, which gets me out of this. Now, let's not miss this. This isn't Paul saying, I'm not willing to suffer for Christ. This isn't him saying, no, I'm not suffering for Christ. This is him using what's rightly been given to him, his Roman citizenship, in order to not die that day or be crippled, but in order to also endure for the ministry for the long haul. So what he does is he asks this rhetorical question, which he knows the answer. Um, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? He says this to the centurion, and the centurion has what's known as an uh-oh moment. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, uh, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. And then they're both freaking out. They're like, oh no, we're in trouble. Uh, and then so the centurion, Jack Bauer, Claudius Lysias, comes to him and says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he says, yeah. I am. And then so he has that panic moment where he's like, oh no, like if, this, if it gets out that I've done this, then I'm in trouble. As a matter of fact, in chapter 23, there's a recounting of the story. The tribune, Claudius Lysias, is telling the higher-ups what happens, and he just happens to leave out this part. As a matter of fact, he, he does what's a little bit of a spin. He's like, I saved him. I sent those people in. The Jewish people are going to tear him apart. I pull him out, and look, here he is. I've, I've saved him. I'm going to leave out the part about the, leaving him, uh, tying him to the flogging post, and I'm about to kill him, leaving that part out. But anyway, we're getting back to this. Uh, and so he says, the tribune says, are you a Roman citizen? He goes, yeah. And it, the tribune says, I bought my citizenship for a large sum, but Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth, double uh uh-oh. So this is a big deal because uh, if you were to buy your citizenship, then it was usually with some kind of unsavory type of way. But if you're a Roman citizen by birth, then that's, that's different. That's like even better. And so Paul, by saying this, helps the tribune realize we're equals. As a matter of fact, I actually was by birth. My dad had it, and he passed it along to me. You bought yourself into this in maybe some kind of unsavory way. And so uh, the way you're treating me is not good. And the, the tribune knows all of this information. He realized, oh, man, this guy's actually even, like, maybe slightly more important than me because it's by birth and not by buying. I, uh, I better get him off of this thing. That's why we, when we read here, uh, those who are about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. They're like, we're clocking out. We're out of here. Good luck, Tribune. We're, we don't want to be seen here. And then even it says the Tribune is like, uh, he was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had bound him up. He had tied him up there. So what we see here as we're looking at this uh, is, as Marita says, the paper. This is, he rolls out the, the citizenship papers and he's like, boom. I got my papers here. You can't do this. So as we're looking at this as a large strategy then, as we're thinking about this is one of the strategies Paul used for overcoming persecution or suffering that's been given to him. It's one for us as well. And that is this, that um, we also, in our country, maybe not in other countries, but at least for us, we have been given the right to have uh, a religion and practice our religion correctly. It's been given to us by God. Let me, let me read to you from Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 1. It says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist that have been instituted by God. So, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. That's talking about whoever's in charge and your governmental authorities that are, that are here. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Uh, 
those who are in charge have been put there by God. For he who carries, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You can keep reading. My whole point is this. Um, every time period of every government, of every year, ever, every place there are in every country, all of those have been put by God. And in this particular time period where Paul is, his strategy for overcoming persecution is that he was a Roman citizen and he played that Roman citizenship card to be able to overcome persecution. For us, we also have been put into a country. If you live in another country, then it's different. But we're, we're here. This is where we live. And we have, at least for now, the ability to, uh, kind of unjust, uh, just to, we have the ability to worship freely. So um, whenever, the, the point I'm trying to make is, uh, We've been given this right to be able to worship freely here. And so we should, uh, as Romans 13 helps us understand, use and exercise that gift that we have freely. So whenever anybody tries to persecute us for our suffering, we are remind them, like Paul, uh, you shouldn't be doing this. I have a right to do this. I have a right to worship in, in, in the way that I've, I've been given here. Romans 13 teaches me that all governmental structures and authorities have been put here by Paul. And since that's the case, um, I'm allowed to do this. So Paul's first reaction is to use what's given to him by God and the government that he lives in to get out of uh, any kind of pending suffering. Now, this isn't, as I said, this isn't Paul saying, uh, I'm not willing to suffer for Christ. This is him saying, since God has put these things in place, it's okay for me to use them and I'm not running away from suffering. And the same thing would be for you. If there's suffering that happens from a governmental structure to you and you're able to get out of it because of laws, because of Romans 13, 1 and following, you're allowed to use those things and you're not in some way saying, I'm not willing to suffer for Christ. That's not the case. Now, if you didn't live in that type of government and you had to suffer, then you should. And we're gonna see people in just a minute, in a little bit, who does that. Now, uh, this means there's a difference between Humbly suffering for Christ and being a victim of injustice. We're not called to be victims of injustice. We are called to live in the government that we're in. There's a difference between humbly serving Christ and being a victim of injustice. And so since we live in this country at this particular time, uh, we have laws that protect us in this country and we can appeal to them. Now, if the converse thing were to happen, that there would be laws that prevented us from worshiping Jesus, that's when we take the Acts 5.39 approach. We gotta obey God, not man. Sorry, I'm not, not gonna worship Jesus. I'm going to. So, but since we're allowed to, we pull that card out, just like Paul. Paper. We, I got my papers, I can do it. That's the first one. That's the first one. That's the first strategy for overcoming suffering in this particular text. There's billions, there's billions, but we're looking at these three because that's what's in the text. The next one is in verse 30. So, as we're there, uh, we're picturing this, this thing where Paul's talking to them. They get all mad. They're throwing their coats around and flinging dust in the air. Uh, he sees that this is going to go bad. He understands this is going to be bad. And he pulls Paul out. You can see, uh, so those who are about to examine withdrew immediately. And he pulls Paul out as well, away from all the Romans because he doesn't want them uh, to, be, to beat him up. And he doesn't, he doesn't whip him either. He puts him in jail, verse 30. But on the next day, Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused, he unbound him and the, commanded the chief priests and the council to meet him. So uh, the commander here is still wondering to himself, um, what is it that uh, previously, as we looked in chapter 22, that made those Jews, uh, that, who, who Paul's also Jewish, get so mad at him? 
I, I tried asking the people. I tried uh, having this little part here where the people tried to get and they got crazy. I tried flogging. That didn't work. So now I'm just going to try the Sanhedrin. I'm going to bring him before the council and see if I can figure out what's going on. So he's trying to f- figure out why the, the Jews hated Paul, what they're accusing him of. So on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he's being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to come meet him. And he brought down Paul and set them before him. And this is, as we're going into 23.1, this is speech number two. This is a short one. But nevertheless, this is speech number two out of five as we're going through the end of the book of Acts. And Paul says this. He sits down uh, and he looks at him. Now, we should know the major players in the room before we see. We've got Paul. Uh, and we've, if you want to see his street cred, you can see it in Philippians 3. He lists it out there in Philippians 3, verses 1 and following. But you also have this other guy, Ananias. Now, this is not Ananias uh, that was mentioned um, as the guy that met Paul and, and helped him regain his sight. That's in twenty two twelve or in Acts chapter 9. Not that guy. It's a different Ananias. This particular Ananias um, is the high priest of the Sanhedrin. And uh, one, one historian named Josephus. Josephus um, wasn't a Christian, had no reason to paint Christian in a good light uh, whatsoever. Mentioning this particular Ananias here that we're going to see here. He says that this man... Ananias was a great hoarder of money. He even took away the tithes that belonged to the priest by violence. So he, he's a wicked guy. He's not a good fella at all. Paul's going to meet this guy. This is the guy that Paul's going to um, be on the other side of and try to make his, his plea. So Paul sits down in front of this guy, Ananias, and the rest of the council. He sits down before them and looking intently at them, Paul, looking them eye to eye, looks at the council, and he says, starting speech number two, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, what does he mean here? Before we move on to the reactions and all that stuff, let's just, in the immediate context, make sure we can try to figure out what Paul's trying to say. Now, we know, based on chapter 21, you know, starting from Paul's arrival at Jerusalem, that they, they're making these rumors. They don't like him. He tries to become all things to all people, so he might save some. It doesn't work out. So in the most immediate context, I think what Paul's trying to say here is, he's trying to indicate that your opinion of me and the way that I live as a Jewish man is wrong. You're not right. Uh, The way that I've been living as a Jewish man is actually correct. And and he says, so I've lived my life before God in a good conscience all the way up to this day. So all all the rumors that you're accusing me of are absolutely not true. As a matter of fact, um, what, the way you think God thinks of me is wrong. You don't even know how God thinks of me. You think incorrectly of God. I know God better than you, and therefore the way I've lived before God is actually correct, and you're not right. I think that's the immediate context of what he's trying to say, um, that he has been a good Jew, having served God with a good conscience all the way up until this particular point. Now, we're going to see his reaction in a second, but I just, as I read verse 1, thinking on it, this particular week, I thought, man, what a good verse. If we just pulled that out and we didn't have to see the whole story, we just looked at verse one, that's a really good verse for us to think of. So before we move on, let me just let us dwell for a second on verse one because that's a good verse for us to think about in our own personal walk, in our own personal life. Look at it. Brothers, I have lived my life before God and all good conscience up to this day. I think this is a great verse for us to want to live by. There's, There's four beautiful things in there. One, I've lived my life. He hasn't wasted his life. He's very conscious of the fact that he's given only given one, and he's chosen not to waste his life. He's truly lived his life for God. Not only that, he's lived his life before God. 
He realizes that every moment, every breath, every day is a gift from God and that he lives every single moment before God. There's not anything that God's not aware of. There's not anything that God's not seeing. And he knows that. And he says, I want to truly make all my moments count before God as a new creation. The old man, I'm not anymore. The new man, the new creation I am. And I want to live as this new creation. So I've lived my life. I haven't wasted it. And I've lived it entirely aware that I'm living it before God. That's helpful for you on Tuesday afternoon, on Saturday nights, that you're always living your life before God as a new creation if you're in Christ. A third kind of beautiful thing is that he says this, uh, that I've lived, not only that he's lived his life and hadn't wasted, not only has he lived it before God, and all good conscience. Now, I want to make sure that we're not, uh, when we see an all good conscience, we're not just kind of placing this in some kind of relativistic, humanistic, moralistic kind of category, like, I've just been a good person. I've got a good conscience. My conscience is clean. But instead, we think of this through the lens of the gospel, which is, I think, the way Paul's thinking of it, which means every one of us should have a terrible conscience outside of Jesus. It should plague us continually unless we know Christ. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, helping us understand how Paul can live in such a good conscience, with a good conscience. This is chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near, obviously, to Jesus with a true heart, here it is, in full assurance of faith. Because of our faith in Jesus, we have this thing called assurance, which does this. With our hearts now sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this living his life with a good conscience is totally gospel-centered, which is outside of Jesus, I would be wretched, I would be, I would be uh, horrifically condemned. Uh, I've lived as an enemy of Christ. But because he has come now and I've put my, as it says, faith in Jesus, I've, I've banked all my hope on the cross of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, now I have received complete forgiveness. He's given me his total righteousness. Now my, my conscience has been cleared because my sin has been forgiven. I'm totally clean now. And so since that's the case, now I've not wasted my life. I live my entire life now as a new creation. And I have a good conscience, meaning that I am totally clean. And so... You, if you're a believer, can have a completely clean conscience. Yes, you're still going to sin, but the good news is that all of that sin has been covered by the, good, by the gospel of Christ. And so we can also say with Paul, I have a clear conscience before the Lord, not because you haven't sinned, but precisely because you have sinned and Jesus has forgiven all that. All of your sin was put on him and all his righteousness was put on you. So this is what we see here. This is why it's such a beautiful statement that we haven't wasted our life. We've lived our entire life always before God. There's not a moment we're not before God. We have a clean conscience because of the gospel. And he says, up to this day, meaning every day I want to live fully for Jesus. No half-hearted days for me. No kind of take-off days this day. This, This is the day I just chill and don't do whatever. Every day for me is a day for Christ. So we're going to see the reactions, but man. What a good statement, brothers. And I want to be able to say this. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What a challenging statement. Now, what a bizarre interruption Ananias has. This is totally out of, out of sorts. He's not supposed to do this whatsoever. This is not good. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him in the mouth. Like, straight up hit him. What's going on here? Like, I don't like that statement. Boom, just hit him in the face. This is what happens. You hit him in the face. Okay, boom. Now, have you ever been punched in the face before? I mean, like, really? Somebody hauled off, mad at you, punches you in the jaw. Has that ever happened to you? If it has, 
it's very hard to not be extremely mad at that moment, right? If, it, if it's happened to you, it's happened to me, um, and I didn't like it. Like, it made me really mad. It made the guy that did that make me want to just attack him, right? The guy was bigger than me, and saw a story of my life, so I didn't do anything. But <laughs> that's what happened. I did not feel like, oh, thank you for that. Bless Jesus for that. Could you do it again on the other side? That's what Jesus says. I didn't feel that way. I wanted to do something about it. Now, in this particular moment, totally legitimately, that's how Paul feels. So this guy uh, is, is expect, this guy tells, the, uh, Ananias tells him to hit him. Now, this is totally out of sorts. Tony Marita says this, one would expect a leader of the Jewish high court to display civility and justice. He's not supposed to do this. He's, they're in a court system, court kind of uh, meeting, and this is not supposed to happen in this kind of court meeting where he's the high priest and he's in charge of what's going on. Did Paul speak out of order here? They looked at him. He wasn't speaking out of order. This was his turn, no. Did what he say uh, prima facie seem like some kind of lie? I don't think so on on the face of it. It, No. Uh, Likely, what happened was this this was an assault or an insult to Ananias' belief system. Personally, he did not believe Paul had lived in an honorable way, and so he didn't like it. Now, Leviticus 19.15 is the law that Ananias broke. It says this, you shall do no injustice in court. This is an injustice to hit somebody in the face whenever they're talking, especially when they've been invited to talk. And he says, I think I've lived in an honorable way before God. You don't just haul off and hit somebody. Um, You shall not be partial to the poor, defer to a great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So you're not supposed to do injustice in court according to uh, Leviticus 19.15. Paul knows this. Paul knows this and tells him, you've, done, you've broken this law. You can see this. Then, so he's punched in the face. Now, absolutely understandably, Paul's angry, very angry. And Paul says to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, that might not be necessarily a, uh, a big, huge um, insult to you. So uh, this is you know, great alliteration in English. But other than that, it's probably not the best reaction um, he just got hit. He's not, he's not enjoying it. Uh, and so he yells at him, this whitewashed wall. This is a reference, of course, to Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Whenever Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he says to them, so what is a whitewashed wall? This is what it means. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which, appear out, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Meaning, you look great on the outside, but on the inside, the core of who you are, you're wicked. You're horrific. Going on, it says, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Paul charges this guy with that. You you hear my statement, and you hit me in the face, or at least you order someone to hit me in the face. Um, And so are you... Sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. You're supposed to sit here and judge me righteously, and you broke Leviticus 19.15. You're not supposed to hit me in the face. That's not what's supposed to happen. Also, Paul, um, by yelling this at Ananias, has also broken some of the, uh, the spirit of what he's supposed to do. He's, he's not immediately supposed to pop off and yell back at uh, Ananias, but he does. So remember, I said this last week, as Luke's writing the book of Luke... Uh, and talking about how Jesus in the end is kind of is, is arrested and how his trial goes. He's in some ways paralleling the book of Acts in the same way how Paul's arrested and he goes to some kind of trial, etc. Not in a way that says, you know, Paul's savior number two. Like Paul's just as good as Jesus. Not at all. But he's just a narrative little strategy he's using. But still, you know, Jesus is the savior. Uh, well, this is what happens to Luke. 
Uh, I'm sorry, this is what happens to Jesus in the book of Luke uh, when Jesus is hit. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy who it is that struck you. And they said many other things about him against him and blaspheming him. But Jesus didn't strike back. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading, you see what he does. Um, and they came, and when the day came, the assembly of elders and the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to the council, and they said, if you're the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if <clears throat> I ask, you will not answer. But for now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they said, are you the Son of God then? And he said, you say that I am. Like, basically, yes. So in this moment, Christ, as he's beaten, didn't respond with, you know, popping off and yelling at work, yelling words, wrong words. Instead, he took it. And he let them know that he's the son of God. Even Paul said this, and he broke his own kind of writing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 12 through 11 through 13, it says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poor and dressed, buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. He broke that, right? When persecuted, he popped off because he was mad. He got hit in the face and he, didn't, he yelled him, he called him a whitewashed tomb. When slandered, we entreat, we have become all things and are still the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. So, uh, Paul, instead of following these principles, which he's supposed to, with the, the, the example of Jesus and his own words, um, besides being excellent at alliterating and, and translated English, calling him a whitewashed wall, he did not respond in an excellent way here. He did not respond in an excellent way. Uh, he actually broke a law. So we're going to see how he broke the law here. So by calling him a whitewashed wall, they say to Paul, uh, who are you, verse 4, they said to him, would you revile God's high priest? So in the courtroom, you're not supposed to revile or yell things at the high priest in an insulting manner. So Paul realizes he's also broke, broken a law. And that's why he says in verse 5, and Paul said, I didn't know, know, brothers, that he's the high priest. For it's written in Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul breaks the law here. Uh, the guy broke a law, the, he broke a law. So as we're looking at all this, um, if the first was paper, uh, here's my papers to get out of this. The second reaction that he has is to rebuke the high priest. Now, that's not necessarily good. That's the rock. That's the hammer falling down. He verbally uh, gives him the rock. But uh, as we're looking at that, here's the way that you can, as you're thinking about um, going and navigating or strategizing for overcoming persecution in your life, is this. You, you give them what, what Marita says is the, the rock, which is this. Um, not the response, which is verse 3, but instead the first sentence, which is uh, his opening statement on how he's been living. Brothers, I live my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So for us, the first one is we use our laws that God's given us. And if there's a way to not be persecuted so we can do our ministry, we do that. The second thing is we look to the rock. Like Paul said, we live our lives in such a way that we can say, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. We we look to Christ and we live our lives in such a way that whenever we come into these moments and the way to endure through this per persecution and suffering is to keep looking at Jesus, to keep hoping in Christ, to keep saying, Jesus is my only hope, Jesus is my only portion, and I want to live in so such a way that I live my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And in this moment when this persecution is happening to me, as I endure through this, I want to glorify Jesus through this type of persecution. So I'm going to look to Christ. He's my only hope. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to obey. Um, I'm going to obey 1 Corinthians 4 so that whenever I'm supposed to endure, 
to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, I'm actually going to bless. When persecuted, I'm actually going to endure. When slandered, I'm actually going to entreat people. And I've become and are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So whenever persecution comes to us, what do we do? We look to Christ. We look to Christ as our only hope. Um, one guy named Polycarp, he was a first, uh, first century saint at the end of his life. Um, he did that very thing. At the end of his life, when they're trying to get him, the aged Polycarp, one commenter says, when aged Polycarp brought into the arena of Smyrna was urged by the proconsul, take the oath, basically revile Christ. I'll release you if you revile Christ. But all they could say was, for 86 years I've served Jesus and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king now who saved me? And he went on. This is the same thing for us. We continue enduring, looking to Christ. We continue with Jesus. That's the second strategy of overcoming persecution is keep living every life for, every day for Christ. Now we've come to, we've done the paper, we've done the rock, now we're at the scissors. We're at the scissors. And this is where Paul divides the room. This is where Paul divides the room. So verse six, Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees and he cried out to the council. Now, he, he, Luke explains the difference here. You can see it in verse seven and following when he said, said this, a dissension rose between Pharisees and Sadducees and the assembly was divided for, here's why, the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, no angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. In other words, um, and I've said this a few times, I know it's kind of, you know, weird or whatever, but you're gonna not forget it. The Pharisees believe in the afterlife. They, know, they believe in a the resurrection, they believe in the afterlife, and that's fair, you see, and the Sadducees don't believe in the afterlife, and that's sad, you see. Like, you know, it's corny, but you're never going to get it. But the whole point is that Paul sees that there's Pharisees and Sadducees in the room. Paul believes in the afterlife, and he's going to, for us, give us our third strategy of overcoming persecution. The first one is to use the laws that God's made available for us, to know the word so that we can use those. But also, the second one is to look to Christ as our only hope and endure through this by honoring Christ as we live through it. The, se- the third one is this, which is what he says. Now, as Paul says this, there, there's a, I think there's a two-pronged strategy here, right? The first is the immediate that we can see is he wants to divide the room. He wants to pull out the scissors. When Paul was perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other was Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and it's respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Boom, they're all immediately, that's it. That, they're all done, Like. The Pharisees like, yeah, we believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees like, no, we don't. And then all of a sudden, they start yelling at each other, and he just kind of sits back, lets them tear their heads off. And then all of a sudden, the Pharisees are like literally standing up. We believe Paul now. We believe Paul. And so, I mean, they say, we find nothing wrong with this man. And the, it gets so crazy, and it says that they're, they're afraid they're going to tear him to pieces. And in swoops the tribune for the third time, like, get Paul out of here. they got to take him back to the barracks again. They're going to kill him. Over here's the barracks. It's apparently for every week. Um, and so uh, for the third time, the tribune has to rescue Paul out and, and bring him over to uh, save him. But back to the point that I'm trying to make. I said there's kind of a, a two-pronged effect that's happening here as, as Paul says this. Um, he says, I'm a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Immediately, we can see Paul is dividing the room and manipulating them. I don't think in a bad way, but he knows he's gonna die, right, otherwise. And so he knows that it, Jesus wants to use him for ministry and he doesn't want to die today. And so he says that and it works. But the longer point that he's trying to make, which is what's helping us, like it's the third application for us. The first one is use the laws that God's made available so you have to, 
you don't have to die today if you're persecuted. The second one is always look to Jesus, endure uh, through that. But the third one is this. Look what he says. It's respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. That's the same thing for us. You're going to endure through persecution and suffering by the same thing. Realizing that your only hope that you have for life is not this particular life, but the resurrection that you'll receive one day. Your resurrected hope, your blessed glorification. When God finally comes back and saves us and our body, this body, is made to be like our older brother. That's our hope. So we endure through suffering knowing that this particular short life we have is not the final resting place for us. We endure because we have the hope of the resurrection. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, he says this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. But Christ has been raised. And so since that's the fact, since he has been raised, our first fruits of those who fall asleep, um, we, also, we have our preaching's not in vain, therefore, and our faith is not in vain. So this is, this is what he's pointing us to. So the third way that we endure is that we realize that our faith is not in vain, the hope of the resurrection is absolutely not in vain, and it's sure, and so we keep on in persecution, heralding the good news of Jesus. We tell people about who Christ is. So as we're looking at these strategies, we've seen that we look to the word to help us, to help us know know how to navigate through sufferings. We also look to Christ and endure and live an honoring life to Christ. We also look to the hope of the resurrection. And that's our strategies that we see. Calvin says this as we're looking at, as he's looking at this particular text and talking about um, how we live. Uh, He says this, this is the whole of what we should seek in the scriptures, to be well acquainted with Jesus. So if we're going to say, What's the purpose of looking at the Bible? And how can I, whenever I look at the Bible, how can it help me? What, what are the things I'm supposed to do as I look at the Bible? This is what Calvin says. There's two things you should do whenever you read the Bible all the time. This is our hope of what we should seek, the whole of what we should seek in the scriptures. One, to be well acquainted with Jesus Christ. As you read the scriptures, the point is to know Christ. And number two is, and the infinite riches which are contained in Christ and which are by Jesus offered to us from God the Father. So when we read the scriptures, we're looking to see and know Jesus Christ, become well acquainted with him, and also the infinite riches that God in Christ offers to us. This is why we read the scriptures. And so when we're going through suffering, this is why uh, we look to Christ, and this is how we look to Christ. Jesus meets us, Tony Marita says, in his word, and by marinating our thoughts and our hearts in the gospel is where we find great strength. So when we endure through suffering, it's because we have continually prior to that moment marinated our mind in who Christ is and become well acquainted with him and all the promises that are made available to us in Christ Jesus. Uh, January, February, March at our house is birthday months. We have four uh, in January, January 9, February, I'm gonna mess up here, 13, March 1, March 23. We just finished number four uh, this weekend. We got more in the summer. But hey, like these first three months are a big deal at our house, right? So um, as we're doing that and as we, we hand out presents to our kids, I've never ever seen this before. Uh, and you'll, you'll understand this. I've never given a present to one of my children and they say, oh, that's a great present. I'm just gonna put it over here on the shelf and look at that present from afar. Look at that gift wrap. Look at that. Mmm. You went out, you went too far. Look at that. I mean, that's what they do. You probably, like them, take it 
and you rip it through and you find out what's in there and you want to get everything that you can. You don't look at the shelf and say, admire this gift, but instead you rip it open and want to see everything that's in the present. This is what I'm talking about. This precious gift of Christ has been given to us. And we don't take it and say, oh, look at Jesus on the shelf. I'm just going to admire you from afar and think you're awesome. Instead, no. We take the gift and we pull it out and we open it and we experience and we, we dive into and know the present as much as we can. Now, in that same kind of present illustration metaphor or whatever, uh, have you ever given, we do this, like we give a gift to our kids and there's a couple presents in there, you know, like one two or three things that kind of ha- pull into this kind of theme present. So they pull out the first one and they're like, oh, it's so awesome. And they go off and they play with it for a while. Like, no, 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 that's not all. There's more in the gift. There's more in there. You should, you should keep looking. Go back and see. This is the same thing that, that Calvin is pointing us to in the gift of Christ. You pull out the first thing and you're like, whoa, look at this about Jesus. And he's like, no, no, the gospel's better than that. Keep looking. There's more to the good news. You've experienced this great thing about the gift, but guess what? Go back into the bag. Go back into the gift. There's a whole lot more about Jesus. Keep looking at the good news of the gospel. There's more in there that you can imagine. You go back in there and you're like, whoa, look at that. I've turned the diamond of the good news. There's more. That's right. Go and look again. There's more in there. You keep going back. All of our life is a, is a continual um, going back to the preciousness of the gift of Jesus. And as Calvin says, becoming more and more acquainted with, the G- with Jesus and all the infinite riches that are contained in Christ in this amazing gift that's been given to us. So if you're, if you're feeling dry, you're feeling like my life is just like in Christ or this, my Christian walk is just like come to this, this dry point, you need to go look at the, inside the gift again. There's a whole lot more there. There's infinite riches being offered to us at the hands of Jesus. Infinite riches being offered to us at the hands of Jesus. Now, as we rejoin this kind of story that's going on. Paul has, has to be feeling dejected here. He has to be feeling pretty terrible. John Stott surmises, the violence of the last two days and especially the enmity of the Jews must have made him wonder anxiously about the future. Like, I thought it was going to be the storybook ending. They're gonna, Jews are going to be like, yay, Paul, let's go get pizza. You're awesome. You do love the Jewish people. It went bad, right? It all went bad. And he's thinking, sitting there in the jail, it had to be. Maybe I miscalculated Maybe this isn't right. Here's the great thing. Jesus knows this. He knows this. And what does he do? Leave him there to figure it out? No. Look what happens. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Now, it's not going to be the exact same for you. But nevertheless, in some ways it is. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Like Paul, Jesus comes and is with him in his suffering where he's feeling dejected and wondering if he's doing it right and wondering, is is God ticked at me? Is this right? It doesn't feel like I've done correctly and he comes and he tells him, you have and I'm with you. And the same thing's for you. We have this promise in Hebrews 13, 5. I'll never leave you nor I'll forsake you. I'm with you always to the end of the age in Matthew 28, 20. And this promise is for you. As you're enduring suffering, Jesus, like he comes to Paul and comforts him, he sends his Holy Spirit to us and comforts us through our suffering. Let's look at how he does it here because there's some pretty good applications or encouragements that we can draw. He comes to him the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify, you, you must testify also in Rome. The, the first thing that you can see is um, God knew. Jesus knew. Like 
if Jesus wouldn't have shown up, that would have been like a, uh, an evidence that Jesus didn't even know what's going on. But just the fact that he shows up means the Lord knows us. The Lord knows us, and he knows what's going on. He knows what's happening in your life. He knows what, what suffering you're experiencing, whether it be persecution because of your faith or at least just general life because it, sometimes life just stinks. He knows you. He knows everything that's going on with you. The Lord knows you. That's, that's very encouraging to know that you're not some distant guy way off in the, in, the, in, the, in, the fear, in the far and that he doesn't know what's going on in your life. He does know. He knows you. Not only that, that's what we see. The Lord shows up. But also, he tells him that he's with him. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. This is also, take heart. Um, this is him saying, uh, I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you. Not only do I know you, but I'm with you. Take heart. Now, there's some even more encouraging things that he says. He could have just done those two things and that would have been completely satisfactory encouragement for Paul. I'm here and I'm telling you to take heart. It's fine. But notice he even gives him more encouragement, two more encouragements actually. He says this, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, meaning this, at this moment Paul had to have thought, I don't think I did it right here in Jerusalem. (laughs) Like I ended up in jail, I'm kind of by myself, it doesn't feel like I preached the gospel accordingly the way I should have. And what does Jesus say to him? You have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. You can take heart and encouragement because you have done it. Charles Spurgeon uh, says this about this particular uh, part of the text. He says, Paul was too humble to console himself with the fact that until the Lord had given him leave to acknowledge that he had done the brave deed, that he had actually preached the gospel correctly in Jerusalem. He's too humble to even realize it until Jesus comes to him and says, hey, you've done it right. You've done it here. And so much so, not only have you done it correctly here, but I'm going to send you to Rome to do it again, over, over there. Look at it. So you must also testify, so you must testify also in Rome, which means the Lord knows us, the Lord is with us, the Lord is for us, Paul's done a good job, and the Lord's not done with us yet. You've got two more years to live on this earth, bub. That's what he's telling me, didn't call him bub, calls him Paul. Like, you've got two more years to live on this earth, and it's not the way you thought it was going to go to Rome. You thought you are just going to go to Rome and, and be there. You're going to go to Rome, but as a prisoner, but as one of those prisoners that gets to walk around for a little, like a house arrest, you're going to get to teach the gospel, and then you're going to go back to prison, and you're going to be beheaded. You're going to die, but nevertheless, you're going to go to Rome. And he's telling him, so you must testify also in Rome, meaning I'm not done with you. There's still more gospel for you to preach in Rome. And that had to have been a great uh, encouragement to the weary apostle, to know, hey, you've still got more gospel to preach even in Rome. It's going to take the boat ride. And here's the thing. That's also an encouragement for us. You're also still alive because Jesus is not done with you yet. Uh, Kent Hughes says it this way. If you're still breathing, God has a mission for you. I love this. All of God's servants are immortal until their work is done. No servant of God dies a premature death. So because you're alive means God's not finished with you. You might feel like, ah, man, I got, I got nothing to offer Jesus. Not true. He's sovereign and he knows everything. He's got all kinds of plans that he has for you to proclaim and herald the good news to people. Since you're breathing, you are immortal right now until your work's done. So there's plenty of people for you to talk to. Plenty of people he wants you to reach. These are great encouragements for us and hopefully great encouragement for you. We're going to go to a time of the Lord's Supper now where we celebrate the good news of what Christ has done. We think of the fact that the Lord has given us a clean conscience because of our faith in him. And so as we go into this time... um, 
It's a time for us to think on him and worship Jesus. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, this narrative about Paul, this true narrative about Paul that helps us know how to overcome persecution in our own life, that we uh, have been put in this time period, and you've graced us with being able to live in this country. And so if there's ways that we can continue with the mission, that we would, and that we would look to Christ and our ultimate hope would be in you and your uh, promised resurrection to us and that we would, in our hearts and minds and in our lives, keep looking at the gift. Keep looking at the good news of the gospel. There is no end to the gospel. There is no end of getting acquainted with Jesus. And if there's a dry spell, it's not because you have changed, it's because we have changed and that we return to what you've done and think deeply about it. We love you, Lord, and we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're going to take the Lord's